The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Brett Eversole. He is the lead analyst at the newsletter called True Wealth, which is uh, published by Stansbury Research. Welcome to the show, Brett. Thank you so much for having me, Jordan. It's good to be here. Let's just start with your background a little bit uh, and what led up to uh, joining Stansbury and working on the True Wealth newsletter. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Um, well, my background is actually in mathematics. Um, I got a, a bachelor's degree in actuarial science, which I, I found that a lot, of, a lot of folks don't know what that is, but it's actually risk pricing. Um, actuaries do uh, insurance work. Um, they, they figure out what you pay every month for your, for your insurance premiums. So um, I didn't actually have a lot of finance background, but I, I stumbled into this career fresh out of college. I never actually worked in the insurance industry. Um, but what I, what I found is being good at math uh, involves a lot, of, a lot of analytical skills and being able to juggle a lot of thoughts all at once. And the financial markets actually work out uh, quite a bit the same way. So I've been working with Stansberry and Associates for just over four years now. And um, it's been a great experience for me, uh, able to come to work every day and, uh, you know, le- learn about investment ideas and uh, deliver those to our readers is really, you know, it's our goal. We're, we're an independent financial publisher, so we, we serve our readers. That's, uh, that's who we're worried about. So it, it's great to be able to, you know, come in and, and find the absolute best ideas for them. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. What lessons have you learned from knowing actuarial science and how that applies to picking stocks? Well, I'm not sure if it applies necessarily well, to picking stocks particularly, what I will say is, you know, actuaries work in, work in the field of modeling, right? So modeling risk, modeling behavior to a certain extent, and um, putting financial values on those numbers. So I think there is, there's a lot of value to that in financial markets. Um, looking back at historically how certain circumstances have led to either stock market gains or stock market losses, um, I think there's a lot of value to that, but at the same time, you have to be kind of weary never to trust your model too much because um, mo- models have a tendency to break down at certain times. So while understanding that there's a lot of historical numbers that can be used to figure out what's going on, um, we still have to incorporate you know, a lot of risk management strategies in order to never let things get away from us. Um, what do you think is one of the biggest mistakes that most investors make in evaluating stocks? Um, I think one of the biggest things folks make is it's something that we recommend pretty much abroad, uh, uh, across all of our newsletters is the idea of a trailing stop or using a stop loss. Um, so what I think what happens a lot of times to investors is, well, it's a few things, but it comes back to kind of um, emotional biases. You know, when you buy something at, say, 10, and then you see it fall to 5, you're, you're anchored to that price of 10. Um, and folks don't want to realize that loss, but at the same time, you never want to throw good money after bad money, and you, you don't want to 
stay in a bad situation just because you've already had a loss. So what we recommend doing is using a, a stop loss of some sort, and we often use a trailing stop loss, which I can explain in a second, on pretty much all of our positions. And the goal there is really to force folks, force our readers and force ourselves as well not to get caught up into an idea or into an investment. If something's going against us and it goes against us far enough, then we have to just, you know, wash our hands of it and move on to the next thing. Um, so what, what, we often, what percentage uh, trailing stop loss do you do? I mean, 20% below the purchase we, price, and what kind of percentage do you, do you put that in? We usually use a 25% trailing stop, so I can explain briefly how that would work. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. So a lot of times people use a fixed stop. So say, say you use a 25% stop and you bought a stock at $10. Then if it fell 25% below that to $750, then that would trigger the stop. But what we actually recommend doing is using a trailing stop, which, which moves with the share price. So if you buy at $10 and your stock goes up to 20 that trailing stop is going to follow up with you. So you're going to sell at 25% below the highest price you've seen since you purchased. So if it goes to $20, then your new trailing stop would be at 15 And most brokerage firms allow you to do trailing stops. It's not something you have to be watching yourself. Um, I cannot speak to that for sure. Um, I would imagine they probably could, but we do definitely recommend keeping your stops out of the market. Um, I, I think it's important for any investor, whether you have a broker or not, to really understand that your, fi- your financial future is kind of yours to own. Um, so they're putting things in place that help out is great, but at the end of the day, you need to be kind of keeping track of what's going on. Um, so you're saying it's a mental st- trailing stop, not actually uh, uh, placing it in the order st- flow. That's, cr- that's correct. We don't, we don't recommend placing them physically in the market. I see. Okay. All right, so let's kind of look at a broad uh, uh, sense of strategy that you have here. Um, you're, you're kind of a uh, bargain hunter, contrarian, buying things cheap. Explain how you go about seeing what's overvalued and what's undervalued, and when you look at something that's undervalued, it normally it's a catalyst to turn around. How do you kind of go through that whole process of over and undervaluation? Yeah, it's great. Um, so, yeah, we definitely look for, we kind of use a, a value momentum strategy. Um, so we always want to buy, you know, what is cheap, and there are a lot of ways to kind of measure value or cheapness. Um, we look at a lot of kind of, typical metrics, um, things like price-to-earnings ratios or price-to-book value ratios. Um, but like you said, it is important to look for a catalyst because you can end up in kind of a, a value trap situation a lot of times. So what we always look for um, is when we're always scanning, scanning the world to f- try to find where the value is, and then we oftentimes, well, almost always, wait for an uptrend, wait for prices to confirm that the value is moving the other direction. Um, so right now, a great example, things that we've been excited about but that haven't really worked out for us in the past uh, 12 months or so are places like Russia or China, where there's incredible value in those markets. But, I mean, obviously, Russia, there's been a lot of geopolitical things going on. Um, but essentially, we've seen continued falling prices. So, you know, places like Russia and China might be trading at, you know, half or less of what the U.S. market trades for. But it's just dangerous to get into those kind of situations until you see some upward confirmation. So we always look for things that are cheap and what folks aren't really interested in, but then we always wait for that uptrend to kind of confirm that now we have a safe opportunity to get in. So how do you deal with geopolitical? I mean, Russia's a good example. 
mm-hmm. on price earnings and almost any multiple valuation, it's incredibly cheap, probably the cheapest in the world. But if they're going to get into a war with Ukraine and have all these sanctions on them, these are fundamental factors that are going to impact their companies. How do you factor out geopolitical events from pure valuation? Well, it's a really tough question. And I think the way the typical investor needs to approach it is, at the end of the day, like uh, the Ukraine situation is not something, until it happened, no one saw it coming, right? To a certain extent, it was a, a bit of a black swan event, if you will. Um, so when you get into investments like that, I mean, I think it comes back to that very important idea of a trailing stop loss. So we were actually in a Russian stock fund when that happened last year, and we immediately sold out of it. Um, because, like I say, even though the Russian market is trading at maybe six times earnings, with an event like that, it could very easily go to two times earnings or three times earnings or four times earnings. It could fall dramatically still. So I think it's important for folks not to be scared out of making an investment like Russia, but at the same time, you have to be always aware of those risk management ideas and that you have to get out when things change and have to be willing to kind of uh, pivot quickly. Um, so part of your strategy is taking uh, sh- small losses and be around for big gains, basically. Absolutely. But you're willing to take small losses. Absolutely, yes, yes. Because psychologically, that may be difficult for people. If you're buying something that's cheap, you think, how low could it go? It's already in the price. But you're saying there's even room to go below where you're at. Yeah, I think I, there's always room to go lower. Um, <laughs> that's a, it's a tough thing, and a lot of people um, have a hard time grasping that when they see you know, incredible values in the market. Um, but especially in a broad sense, uh, when you're looking at broad markets and not individual companies, there's, there's absolutely that kind of... Because it really comes back to, to market sentiment, right? Um, if, if folks really aren't interested in Russian stocks in general and then geopolitical problems happen, well, they're really not going to be interested. And anyone who's thought about buying or was holding their positions are going to start you know, flooding the market with shares, and you're going to have even more downside. Um, the old adage is that markets can soar higher than anyone imagine and fall lower than anyone can possibly imagine. And uh, It's important to remember that and never get too in bed with a position. Always be willing to cut your losses and follow those important kind of risk management principles um, in any investment that you make. So what, t- talk a little bit about the psychology of your investment style here, because a lot of people are very risk-averse. You're saying you're pretty risk-averse and that you're buying things that are already quite low. There's not that much downside, but you still got to protect yourself on the downside. But you're saying in return for that, you're having a much greater upside potential than, in effect, buying high and selling higher, that, which is kind of the opposite of your, your strategy. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of different strategies that can work in the markets if they're, you have a, a strict set of rules and they're strictly followed. Um, but what we really look for is, like I said, we want to buy things that are kind of the, our three-pronged approach is buying things that are cheap, hated, and in an uptrend. So we always want to look for value, um, and oftentimes values come out in the market in investment opportunities that the average person isn't really interested in. Um, that's why they're cheap, right? Um, but then, at the same time, we want to wait for that kind of upside potential to kick in so that kind of it's, it's a way for the market to show us that what we think is now coming to fruition. Because Russia could be cheap for 
five or six or eight years. I mean, it has been cheap for a few years already, and it could be cheap for a long, long time and at best go nowhere and potentially go farther down. But once we get that upside confirmation from the market that's saying, okay, money's starting to flow back in, um, things aren't great, but they're getting better, uh, there's a little bit of confidence is coming back into the market. That's when we, and we're willing to give up maybe the first 10 or 20% to kind of wait for that confirmation because when those big moves do happen, they happen, you're not looking at a 20 or 30% gain, you're looking at hundreds of percent um, are really possible in those kind of situations. Because they're so depressed, it's almost like a spring bouncing. They've got tremendous upside when they, the trend reverses, is what you're saying. Absolutely, absolutely. And I can, I can give you a good example. One of the trades that we made um, in late, it was late 2011, uh, 2011, was actually to get into home builder stocks. Um, we recommended a fund that invested, that owned uh, home builder stocks and home improvement stocks. And I don't know if you remember, but, you know, in late 2011, that was when the, uh, the default crisis happened and the overall market fell by 20%. And yes. I think a lot of people thought it was, you know, uh, 2008 happening again. Um, and the home builder stocks were kind of those highly leveraged, really cyclical trading with the market kind of ideas. Um, so we ended up buying into that fund a couple of months later, in uh, I believe it was December, December of 2011. And the prices had started to come back, but the sentiment was very bad. The valuations were low. But we, all those things were still true, but we saw kind of the market prices were confirming what we thought is that this isn't going to be the next crisis. Things are going to get better, and these are going to begin moving higher. So once they started to move higher, we got into that trade, and we closed the position for a 90% gain in a little over one year, I believe about 14 months. Great. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Brett Eversall. He's the lead analyst at the True Wealth newsletter published by Stansbury Research. And we'll be back after this. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. If you want to know about investing in emerging and frontier markets, or if you have experience in this field but still need to know more, tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham. Gavin explores news, current trends, and insights about both categories of investing. His guest experts, along with his own knowledge, will help you stay above the line when it comes to growth potential, whether in funds or equities. He will look at what to invest in and avoid. Tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Houston Real Estate Radio with Shannon Register. Tuesdays at 10 Eastern, 1 Pacific on Voice America's Variety Channel. As we have transitioned into a healthier housing market, supply has not been able to keep up with demand. Appraisals have struggled to keep up with rising prices, and lenders have overcorrected their loose lending practices. We track all this and more so you don't have to. HoustonRealEstateRadio.com 
We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Brett Eversole. He's the lead analyst at the True Wealth newsletter published by Stansbury Research. Welcome back to the show, Brett. Thank you. So we talked about the general idea of buying things cheap. So let's do two recent examples of what you think is very cheap that has potential to turn around. One of them is in the grain area, grain-based commodities. So there are three basic grains, corn, wheat, and soybeans. Is that correct? Those are the three you, you cover? Yeah, that's correct. That's what we're looking at right now. So, so kind of talk us a little bit about the supply-demand situation for those, uh, what's been happening to prices, and where you think it might go going forward here. Yeah, absolutely. So this is, again... Um, like I was talking about before, kind of the, the cheap, hated, and in and uptrend uh, philosophy we look for. Um, so grain prices are obviously, you know, dependent upon crops, um, how the crop's coming in. So a couple of years ago, in 2012, um, if you remember, there was a, a big drought, and corn prices went up around 30 or 40 percent in just a few months. Um, and they were already relatively elevated compared to historical standards, but over the past, really since those, those price peaks uh, happened, corn prices are down by more than 50% in about two years. Um, similarly, wheat prices are down around 40%, and soybean prices, they're actually down around 25 or 30% in just the last few months. Um, so from a value perspective, obviously prices are much lower. Um, I know it's, it's difficult to say a, a, put a, a value on corn like you would a stock, but... Um, you know, prices have come down quite a bit. And as you might expect, since those prices have come down, we actually have incredibly negative sentiment in the market. Um, so one of the ways we like to look at commodities, to look at sentiment, is through what are called uh, commitment of traders, which is a weekly uh, report from the Futures Commission that actually shows what real money uh, futures traders are betting on right now. So what tends to happen is it's, it's the old adage that um, investors are right in between and wrong at the extremes. So right now, um, futures investors, are they all expect corn prices and soybean prices and wheat prices to continue to fall. Um, so when you say uh, commitment of traders, this is committing on the short side as opposed to the long side. It's a, a price bet you're getting a sense of. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. That's correct. Okay. Okay, so they're all betting on the short side that prices are going to fall further. Yeah, they're all betting that the trend that's happened is going to continue. Um, and, and you look back at history and you see that when, when sentiment gets this extreme on one side or the other, you oftentimes get a relatively quick kind of snapback rally in prices. Um, okay. So we've got you know, these extremes in sentiment and we've got incredibly low prices. And we, are, um, we actually recommended a fund that holds all three of these commodities in our last issue, um, we haven't actually seen a lot of a lot of uptrend yet. But with these commodity prices, especially the snapback tends to occur very very quickly. So we again, it comes back to kind of our, our risk management strategy. We would 
we were happy to get in a little early, and we set a very tight, um, in this position, we set a tight stop, not a trailing stop, a, a 10% stop loss. Um, and what is, what is that fund as a way to play those three? That fund is, the ticker is JJG. I believe it's an IPATH. Um, it's a Dow Jones, yeah, grains index, basically. Yes, that's yeah. correct. That's correct. Um, so what, if the prices are continuing to fall and sentiment's negative, mm-hmm. I don't see what the catalyst is that's going to turn it around right now. Well, the catalyst, the catalyst isn't necessarily known, but at this point, the way we see it is the crop that's coming in right now has essentially had perfect weather for its entire growing season. And the forward projection for weather patterns over the next few months are for more perfect growing conditions. So what we see is a situation where prices are down enormously. Everyone expects prices to continue to fall because we have this setup where the best crop in history is just a few months away from being harvested. So essentially we're in a situation where the entire market is, the way we see it, is priced for perfection. So I, d- I don't know what, and we, we can't know what the unperfection could be that would, would cause you know, that, uh, that situation not to work out. But when markets are priced for, for, for perfection, it doesn't take a lot, it doesn't take much of any bad news for things to turn around quickly. So is that normally the way it works, is that you don't know what the catalyst is going to be, but you know there should be a catalyst because it's at such an extreme valuation? Well, I mean, it depends. It depends. Um, in certain, it, that's not necessarily as true in the stock market type of investments. When we look at commodities, um, that is more often the case because it's oftentimes shock type events that uh, cause prices to move. So in mm-hmm. this case, we don't necessarily have a set catalyst. All we know is the market is priced for perfection, and most of the time, things don't work out perfect. They work out well, but they don't work out perfect. And uh, we think there's upside there. So it can be, uh, on the bad side like Russia, it can go from horrible to bad, and that can be profitable. Or in the case of grains here, it can go from excellent to good, and that's enough to make it turn the other way. It doesn't have to go from excellent to bad. It doesn't have to be it's just a small change in the direction is all that counts. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, like you say, with Russia going from, it doesn't have to go from, from horrible to great. Um, oftentimes when we get into markets like that, uh, we, write, we write about what we like to call a, a bad to less bad opportunity. Mm-hmm. Because usually where the, the quickest gains occur aren't when things go from good to great. Um, by then, that opportunity is usually priced into the market. So you always want to wait for a bit of price confirmation. You want to wait for things to start to improve slightly. But usually the, the biggest gains happen when things really go from bad to less bad, not when they go from good to great. Because people still don't believe it. Um, usually the valuations are still good. But then the and, price, and have you seen that yet in, in the corn? Have you seen the beginning of price action that is turning around? Um, it, it's flattened out a bit over the past couple of weeks, but uh, not really. Um, this is, this is one that we're, we're, we're pro- we could be getting in a little bit early, but because we're setting a fixed stop at about 10% downside, we think there's maybe 30 to 40% upside over the next three to four months. Um, it's a risk-reward that we're, we're, we're happy to take, even though we, uh, we could be a bit early on it. Okay, and then another uh, example of this is housing. Um, we've had, in general, the housing market's been doing quite well. Uh, housing prices are shipping back and mortgage rates are at affordable levels. 
Uh, but you are saying there's still an opportunity. What is the opportunity in housing as an investment here? Yeah, so we, we see a lot in housing and also, again, uh, I talked briefly about home builder stocks, but we see an opportunity there as well. So the housing market, like you said, has obviously come back quite a bit. Um, but what's interesting about the housing market and why we think it could go much farther is, um, you know, I've, I've read there's a lot of, uh, you know, in a post-2008 world, I think it's a, we live in a, a bubble-happy world. So I feel like I see a, a housing bubble headline every other day. But at the end of the day, what, what comes down to when people buy a home, they don't really think about the price. They don't really think about their mortgage rate. They don't think about, you know, what they have to do to it. What they really think about is the payment. Um, and so I've seen a lot of negative research on housing that say, well, prices are going up and incomes are the same, so you know, house prices can't go up any higher. But that really forgets the incredibly low mortgage rates that we still have today. Um, so we've done, you know, there's a housing affordability index that is put out by the um, Department of Housing and Urban Development. And what it does is it takes into account home prices, incomes, and mortgage rates, and it really determines what amount of payment the typical homeowner can afford versus what the typical home costs. And when you look at this, housing affordability is, you know, it's come off of its all-time highs of a couple of years ago because home prices are up quite a bit. But at the same time, it is still well above kind of median levels over the past, over the past 40 years or so, this index is traded at around 130, which what that means is the median family can afford uh, 1.3 times the cost of what the median home costs. And right now, this index is around 1.6. So we think there's actually a lot of upside still in home prices just to get back to kind of a historically more affordable value. So the argument against that would be twofold. One is... Mm -hmm. Uh, while mortgage rates may be down, it's really hard for the average person to get a mortgage because the banks have increased their down payment and their credit scores and the uh, requirements in, in all kinds of ways. And the other argument would be uh, the housing market looks a lot better than it really is because you have uh, BlackRock and hedge funds and pension funds buying uh, huge amounts of homes all cash, and that's not really uh, end demand. And that's making the housing market look better than it really is. What would you respond to those two? Well, I think um, as far as the, the institutional buyers, um, I think it, it's funny because I've, I've heard that a lot, but I think at the end of the day, there's really a supply-demand imbalance in the housing market that is positive for home prices. Um, so we just did some research in our most, for our most recent issue, and what we looked at were housing starts and um, months of supply, which is another housing metric that's often used. And what that looks at is... If, if homes were new, if no new homes enter the market for sale and homes continue to be sold at their current rate, then how, many, how long would it take for all of the homes to be sold? And that usually sits at around six months, and right now it's at around four and a half months. So essentially you've got less supply on the market than what you've seen historically. And similarly with housing starts, um, there, the housing starts number usually runs at around a million units annualized, and right now it's closer to 600,000, and it's been well below. It hasn't really come back much um, as you know home prices have gone up. So I think on the, on the supply-demand front, and we've done a lot of research as far as you know, what that does for prices of homes on a forward-looking basis and 
prices of uh, home builder companies on a forward-looking basis. But I think the supply-demand equation actually looks pretty good for housing. All right. Okay, very good. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Brett Eversall. Uh, he is the lead analyst at the True Wealth newsletter published by uh, Stansbury Research. And we'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait. They just go for it. Vultures hang around until the lions are finished and just pick up the scraps. How can you set yourself apart as a lion? Join the other aspiring sales lions and listen to Forget Patience, Let's Sell Something with host Ty Maynard. You'll learn the tips and strategies of top sales professionals. You'll gain more clients at a faster rate and at higher margins. If you're a sales professional, business owner, or executive, listen in every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Listen for exclusive clips from Oprah's upcoming Super Soul Sunday series on Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America 7th Wave channel. Then be sure to watch Oprah's Super Soul Sunday on OWN Network TV at 11 a.m., 10 Central, every Sunday. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Brett Eversall. He's the lead analyst at the True Wealth newsletter published by Stansbury Research. Welcome back to the show, Brett. Thanks so much. And if people want to find out more about getting the newsletter, uh, how can they do that? Um, they can go to stansburyresearch.com, um, and the sh- all the information should be on that website. And there also is a newsletter called Daily Wealth, which is a free e-newsletter that you subscribe to as well, or, or participate in. Uh, how can they get that? Uh, yes, they can go to dailywealth.com. And there should be a way to uh, put your email address right in there, and then that'll hit your inbox every morning at around 8 a.m. And um, yeah, I contribute to that quite often, and it's a, it's a great resource. And what's the difference between Daily Wealth and True Wealth? Uh, Daily Wealth is a kind of a quick snippet, um, one simple idea in your inbox every morning. It's not necessarily a specific investment recommendation, but it's kind of one of the big picture things that we're looking at right now. And then in True Wealth every month, we um, really drill down on those ideas and find out the, the absolute best way to make those investments for our, uh, for our readers. Just to finish off the housing discussion, we talked about the supply demand and, and the affordability and so on. What is the way that you think is best for people to play that uh, trend that you see uh, developing? Yeah, well, there's, uh, there's two things. Um, 
like I said, I think the, the supply-demand equation is actually in pretty good shape. And we, we did some of these numbers for our issue last month, and it really, I really couldn't believe, uh, really couldn't believe what I was seeing. Um, you know, a lot of people think of housing as an investment, and here's what what we found is since 1965, once you in, adjust for inflation, home prices have actually only increased 1.2 percent a year, um, which you know after inflation doesn't really sound that great, but. What we also found is, you know, I talked about uh, months of supply. What we found is that when, when supply is low like it is today, on a, a t- forward 12-month basis, that 1.2% a year uh, average return actually triples to a 3.6% a year. So as far as actually, you know, owning a home on a forward-looking basis, you know, based on history, now is actually a pretty darn good time. Um, but, you know, that's a... Uh, a lot of people don't buy their home as their main uh, investment asset. So if you're looking to play it through the, the stock market, we recommend an iShares fund that uh, tracks U.S. home builders. The ticker is ITB. And we did, we did similar research looking at both months of supply and housing starts for home builder stocks. And um, since 65, uh, home builders have returned about 12% a year. But if you buy when housing starts are as low as they are today, the forward return is actually around 35% a year, which is uh, pretty unbelievable. But when these things have, you know, when you have not a lot of housing starts, not a lot of homes being built, there's just a lot of potential for these home builders to, you know, put up really good earnings numbers, um, put a lot of home, build a lot of homes. Um, they've got a lot of demand that's in waiting for their products. So uh, now's actually a great time to get into a, a fund like ITV. And again, the sentiment is very bad on these things right now. Um, it's, it's not nearly as bad as it was a couple of years ago, but this fund really soared and it's kind of flatlined over the past couple of years. And I think, I think people have kind of forgotten about them. They got a bit expensive for a while, um, but they've grown earnings and grown earnings and kind of stayed around the same, the same price. So I, I think people are in disbelief to a certain extent yeah. uh, looking at the housing market. So I think there's still a lot of... Uh, I wouldn't say horribly negative sentiment, but it's certainly not positive. Now let's go to uh, silver and gold, uh, which is similarly had a big boom and then a big bust. That's kind of been coming back a little bit, but not really been that strong. Uh, what is your outlook on silver and gold, and uh, how would you want to play that? Um, we think there's actually pretty good opportunity in silver and gold prices. It's it's surprising. It was surprising to me when I did the research. Um, so a lot of people look at, you know, they say, well, QE is winding down and we'll probably see interest rates hike relatively soon. And these are the things that have kind of, you know, driven the gold market to a certain extent over the last few years. Um, what we did was we did research on periods of Fed easing and Fed tightening. And what we found is surprisingly is that when the Fed turns into a period of tightening, which means they start, they begin to hike rates, which we'll likely see next year, um, that's actually not that bad for gold and silver prices. They actually tend to outperform their average um, annual returns when that happens. Um, it happens mostly when the, as the tightening begins. Um, so over all periods of tightening, they don't do quite as well, but right at the beginning when that first rate hike happens, they tend to do uh, pretty darn well. So. I mean, we're not, uh, we're not gold bugs by any chance, and we're not uh, calling for, you know, $2,000 or $3,000 gold. But I think there's a good opportunity in that sector, and obviously after the, 
you know, the massive glut we've seen in prices over the past uh, year and a half, folks aren't nearly as interested as they once were. Um, and so what is the reason for that? I mean, you'd think when the Fed is tightening, <clears throat> that means that interest rates are going up, which in general is normally bad news for gold and silver. The cost of carrying gold is more, and it, it, rising interest rates in general you think are not good for gold and silver, but why would they be in this case? Well, I think, like I said, what we saw is that when the interest rate hike first begins, um, that's good for prices. But over the long haul of the rate hike, um, gold and silver tend to underperform. So I think what happens is when the hike first happens, it's again, it's that moment of kind of disbelief by the market. Um, they don't, I, I think, that, you know, markets tend to get very irrational. I think it's a case of irrationality where they see the hike coming and people just don't believe it. And gold and silver tend to outperform for, you know, 12 to 18 months afterwards, and then they kind of fall back and kind of the, uh, the, the general overriding principle of what's happening holds up. But in the short term, um, it's kind of an, an irrational opportunity, but it's still an opportunity. So what would be the best ways to play that opportunity uh, in gold, uh, ETFs or physical gold, or what would be your, your favorite way of doing that? Well, our, our favorite way to invest in, in both gold and silver are to buy uh, gold and silver companies, but not not the typical mining companies. We actually, our favorite way to do it is through uh, royalty companies. So in gold, there are a few royalty companies. Uh, one of our favorites is a company called Royal Gold, and the symbol is RGLD. And they're a really a really fantastic. It's just a fantastic business model. What they do is they have you know geologists on staff, and they have I think they probably have you know maybe twenty people on staff, and but they're a uh, $10 billion plus company. And what they do is they invest in early stage gold mines. Um, they put up a large chunk of capital and they buy a royalty stream on a mine that's about to go into production. So they might earn 3% of a mine's future production. So what they end up with is as long as they have good geologists and good um, finance guys who can figure out what they should pay and how much gold this thing is going to produce, how much money they can make off of it, then they really end up being in the business of, you know, driving to the bank and cashing their checks. Um, so they invest in these projects, and then they just get massive cash flows. So they don't have to deal with, you know, worker strikes or mines going over budget or any of those kind of mining problems. It's an inherently difficult, uh, capital-intensive, low-margin business, and they've managed to turn it into a relatively easy, high-margin business, which is a great place to be. Um, it's le very leveraged to the price of gold, up and down, right? It is, yes, yes. They definitely, they trade with the price of gold because their earnings are, they, I don't think they do a lot of hedging, so they're relatively, uh, you know, pr gold movements affect their earnings quite a bit. So it's a kind of a, a leveraged way to, to play the gold market. And then how about in silver? Yeah, similarly in silver, um, there's a company called Silver Wheaton, which is, uh, its ticker is SLW. And it's not exactly the same, but it's, it's very similar. They're actually what's called a streamer, which means they do a similar type of investment, but instead of getting all of their royalties at no cost, they actually they would pay a mine, or they would pay a company that they have a deal with maybe $4 an ounce for their silver. Um, and then they'll get all the silver out of that mine. So they don't get it at no cost like a royalty company, but they, they pay a slight cost, but, you know, with silver at... Twenty dollars. There's still there's still quite a bit of a quite a bit of margin there, but again, it's a it's a situation where they are kind of leveraged to the price of silver. So they're they're not in a, a business that's going to have massive write downs or 
they're not going to fall 50% in a day. They're not going to be hit like we've seen a lot of the big miners be hit over the past couple of years. Um, but it's a way to make a, make a bet on the gold and silver price like we'd like to do and uh, get a little more bang for your buck. So let's talk about the overall U.S. market. Uh, some people are saying we're, we've had a long bull market. We're near the end of it. Some people are saying we've got a lot more room to go. What is your kind of overall view on the U.S. market right now? Well, we, we have been bullish, and we are definitely still bullish going forward. Um, I, it's, it is, you know, we're halfway, a little over halfway through this year and up quite a bit, and that was after a big move last year. So I, I understand why, you know, a lot of people... A lot of people start to get worried after they see that happen, but um, there's an important lesson, and that is that bull markets don't have expiration dates. Um, you can look back at history, and like I, I talked to, you know, a bit ago about the idea that uh, models can be very useful, but you also have to understand that models can be flawed. So a lot of people like to look at history, and they say, well, you know, we're past the typical range of how long a bull market should last, and stocks have never gone up this many years in a row for this long, and all those things are true, and we're certainly closer to the end than we are to the beginning, I would say. But bull markets inherently don't, don't have expiration dates. Um, so we see a lot of things in place that could uh, propel stocks higher for at least the next couple of years. And what, what are those things? What are the basic factors making the market going up that you think will continue? Yeah, the basic factor, and it's really the reason that we've been excited for a long time, and that is you know, what's been going on at the Federal Reserve, first with Ben Bernanke and now with Janet Yellen. Um, we've had, you know, massive QE, and we've had low rates um, for five, six years now. And what is interesting is prices on stocks and what's a fair value on the stock market is actually very, very correlated with interest rates. So you'll read a lot these days about people saying that, you know, stocks are expensive and they're overpriced, and, you know, this has to end badly. But what, what that, and I mean, there's obviously validity to that to a certain extent, but what that misses is, you know, what is your other option? What else can people put their money into right now? And you can't really make a lot of money in bonds. Even high-yield bonds are around 5%. Um, and that's a lot of risk for 5%. It really, people are being forced into the stock market. So what we've done is we've ran, done some research, and what we found is, when short-term interest rates are low, like they are today, uh, specifically below 2.5%, then the P-E ratio on stocks is actually is significantly higher than it normally is. So since 1950, the, the P-E ratio on stocks is around 18. But when rates are very low, it's actually closer to 22. So we've, we wrote about this idea a little over a year and a half ago, and we said that at that time, we said, you know, the U.S. market has, I believe, 95% upside going through 2015. Um, and I think that was a pretty, a pretty bold call at the time, but, you know, the market's up probably 35% since then. And we think there's still a lot of upside because um, it comes back to that same basic principle. Um, we'll probably see a rate hike at some point next year, but we're not going to see a very quick rate hike. And an initial hike of rates is not going to be the, the death toll of the bull market. So if we, we see the earnings growth that is expected and we see stocks continue to move higher on P-E ratios like they have been over the past couple of years, you know, if we get to that more normal level, given that rates are low, of around 22, then there's still 45 46% upside 
from here over the next 18 months or so. And I'm not saying that I expect that to, uh, to fully happen, but it comes back to the point that at this point, you know, U.S. stocks are kind of the only game in town. There's nowhere else yeah. to, uh, to put your money. As long as rates stay relatively low, they really are the only game in town, yes. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Brett Eversall. He is the lead analyst at the True Wealth Newsletter, uh, published by Stansbury Research. You can go to find out more about it at stansburyresearch.com. There's also a newsletter called Daily Wealth, a free newsletter you can find out about and sign up for at dailywealth.com as well. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Houston Real Estate Radio with Shannon Register. Tuesdays at 10 Eastern, 1 Pacific on Voice America's Variety Channel. As we have transitioned into a healthier housing market, supply has not been able to keep up with demand. Appraisals have struggled to keep up with rising prices, and lenders have overcorrected their loose lending practices. We track all this and more so you don't have to. HoustonRealEstateRadio.com You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Brett Eversall. He's the lead analyst at the True Wealth Newsletters published by Stansbury Research. Uh, there's also a newsletter called Daily Wealth, which you can sign up for for free, a free e-letter e- at dailywealth.com. Welcome back to the show, Brett. Thank you. So now I want to go to Europe, and you think there's a lot of good potential in Europe. First of all, on an overall basis, what is attractive about Europe and European stocks right now? So when we look at Europe, what we really see, and you know, it's, not a perfect, it's not a perfect comparison, but Europe really looks a lot like the U.S. did maybe two, two and a half years ago. And what I mean by that is, you know, Europe, when they came out of the, the global financial crisis in 2008, um, you know, whether you agree with the policy or not, uh, the U.S. monetary policy was very aggressive, obviously. Rates were cut very quickly. Um, ben Bernanke started his QE programs and kept instituting newer and newer QE. Um, and it really, so the U.S., you know, came out of recession. Um, it hasn't been massive growth, but they've been, we've been out of recession since 2009. Um, Europe, on the other hand, you know, didn't, didn't attack the problem quite as aggressively, um, and Mario Draghi, the president of the European Central Bank, you know, they cut rates, but they didn't cut them as quickly. And I believe they actually hiked rates at one point in 2011. Um, and now they've instituted a QE-type program, but they haven't really started using it. Um, and what the result is is that you know the U.S. was able, and this isn't the only 
the only reason, but as, as at least partially a result of this, the U.S. is able to avoid a double-dip recession and really kind of get going quicker, whereas Europe did double-dip in 2012 and 2013. And outside of you know, the larger or the stronger European nations, they're still kind of coming out of recession right now. So obviously, their economies haven't come back as quickly. Their stock market has come back a bit, but not nearly as strongly as the U.S. market has. Um, we see more value there looking at uh, price-earnings ratios and things like that. They pay much higher dividend yields in Europe. Um, so we really see it as kind of a similar opportunity to looking at the U.S. a couple of years ago, maybe two or three years ago. So what is the catalyst on the upside? Uh, expanded quantitative easing from the European Central Bank? Yeah, I think it's a very, a very similar story to what we've seen in the U.S. Is the, central, the European Central Bank is becoming much easier. They're instituting easy policy. You know, at the time when the U.S. is thinking about tightening and cutting down their QE problems, the European Central Bank is kind of going full force ahead with their easy money policy. Um, and we've seen what that's done to the U.S. market. And I think we're going to have a similar, a similar opportunity over in Europe. Um, if you look at a lot of the major indexes, they, they show relatively high P.E. ratios on a trailing basis, but on a forward-looking basis, there's a lot of expected growth that's going to happen. Um, and I think we're, we're going to see that come to fruition. And when you look at that, then there's a lot of value over in Europe. And similarly, like I said, the, obviously the S&P and the Dow have you know, broken out to new all-time highs. But um, most of Europe's major stock markets are still well below their 2007 highs. So you yeah. like to play these things through exchange-traded funds, ETFs. What would be some ETFs in which particular countries do you think is the best way to play it? Well, there are two. There are two things we really like in Europe right now. Um, both of them are kind of broad, broad uh, blue chip indexes. So the first is the um, Eurostoxx 50 index, and the ETF that tracks that is called is uh, FEZ, is the ticker. And what that does is it really it holds. It's kind of like the Dow Jones of Europe. It holds Europe's largest blue chip uh, companies. So we've held that in our portfolio for, for quite a while, and we've done well on it, and we, we expect to do, we expect more gains coming from there. Um, but recently, we actually recommended another fund that plays Europe in a broad fashion, and that's the, the Wisdom Tree Hedged Equity Fund, Europe Hedged Equity Fund. The ticker is H-E-D-J. And this fund also, it also holds kind of Europe's larger or largest kind of blue chip companies, but it has one other interesting characteristic to it. And um, these funds were really popular a couple of years ago when um, uh, Abenomics hit and Japan was going to you know, do all of their QE. And people realized that the, the Japanese currency was going to crash and they wanted to make the stock market gains without the losses from the Japanese yen falling. So uh, the ticker on that fund is DXJ. And we actually invested in that as well a couple of years ago and, and did quite well. So what this this Europe fund does is it, is it hedges out your euro exposure as a U.S. investor. So if you buy shares of FEZ, then you're, you, you have exposure to the Europe, or to the euro, sorry. Um, so is that your expectation, that the European stocks are going to rise, but the euro is going to fall, and so it is, makes sense to hedge right now? Yeah, absolutely. We, um, when we first recommended this fund a couple of months back, there was, uh, we were looking at uh, sentiment readings, and we saw that the euro was really sitting at multi-year highs as far as uh, positive sentiment. Folks expected to rise and rise and rise, and it's been kind of a 
you know, not a too extreme, but a, an upward move for the past couple of years. And uh, Mario Draghi has actually come out and said that he's he does not want to see and will do what he can to prevent the euro from rising above a dollar forty. So we were very near that level when we wrote that issue, and um, you know, we don't expect the euro to crash, but we expect there to be a, a downward a downward movement of kind of a breaking of that trend. So it makes sense to hedge against that, you're saying. So you want to hedge it and get the euro value without a falling euro. Let's take a look at the big picture here. Now, we're talking about you're still positive on U.S. stocks, you're positive on European stocks because of all this quantitative easing. The Fed's balance sheet has gone up by $4 trillion or so since they started this program. The Europeans are doing this, the Japanese are doing this. What's going to happen when this, does this bubble get too big and then it all collapses? What's kind of the long-term view of uh, the size of this bubble and what's going to happen when it doesn't keep inflating? Well, I mean, obviously that's, a, that's the million-dollar question, right? Everybody wants to know the answer to that. Um, I think at this point it's, it's tough to say. Um, obviously it, it seems like there's been a lot of easy money. I mean, there has been a lot of easy money policy really globally. Um, and, you know, we saw that in the early 2000s and it turned out relatively poorly. Um, I, I don't want to... I don't want to be predicting the next, the next global financial crisis, but I think the important thing is that there, there's certainly an opportunity for bad things to happen over the next few years. Uh, there has been a lot of easy money floating around the system, but I think a lot of times people get scared into reacting to that potential right now. And I think the important thing is that until something happens or until things change, there's still a lot of opportunity out there in global markets. And the important thing is for folks to really you know, figure out what their, what their, the exposure that they can, you know, that they should be taking and really, you know, be in those markets and be willing to, like we, like I said, with, you know, trailing stops and things like that, be willing to and ready to kind of change when the facts change. But for now, we, you know, we see a lot of opportunity. And well, know, One of the key things they should be looking for, Brett, that would change the trend from the bubble inflating to the bubble deflating. Well, I think when, you know, a, an initial rate hike isn't necessarily a bad thing, but what we did, what we studied when we, we studied the history of, you know, Fed hikes and cuts, and what we found is that stocks actually do well when the hike happens, but a lot of times what happens is the Fed will hike rates, hike rates, hike rates, you know, every policy meeting, and then at a certain point, they'll kind of flatline rates. It'll get to maybe 5% and they'll flatline rates, and historically, that flatline has been at or very close to when we get that, that topping out of, uh, of the U.S. stock market. So the hiking of rates isn't necessarily something to be fearful of, but the flat line of rates is often is kind of uh, a warning sign that maybe the party's over. And not only the stock market, but overall the economy. Could all this money that's been created, a lot of people worry about that being inflationary. Could this have a kind of a hangover effect when we're not inflating anymore? Well, I mean, I think it's, it's certainly possible. I think that's a lot of what we've seen over the past four years, or the past four or five years, is uh, we had a lot of easy money in the system during the housing bubble, and you know, it's been we've been working that off, and we haven't had we haven't had very strong growth because of it. So, I think that's certainly possible to see again. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Brett Eversall. He's the lead analyst at the True Wealth newsletter published by Stansbury Research. Uh, you can go to TrueWealth.com or StansburyResearch.com. He also contributes to a uh, daily free e-letter called Daily Wealth, which you can get at DailyWealth.com. And you can see he's got lots of very good ideas about how to invest and make money, in many cases, in contrarian ways. 
So thanks so much for being a guest on the Money Answer Show, Brett. My pleasure. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you, and we'll be back with another edition of the Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.